You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. everyone. My name is Wesley. For those of you who may not know me, I'm one of the pastors here at King's Church. And today we are concluding our series that we've titled Risen. And in this series, basically we've been taking a look back and and journeying through some of the milestones of the life and ministry of Jesus. And what that led us to last week was ultimately uh, to his death on the cross on Good Friday, and then on Easter Sunday, his resurrection from the dead. And today we're going to find ourselves back in Matthew 28, exploring once again the very final words, or some of the final words, we should say, that Jesus leaves his disciples before his ascension. Now, I have found in this world that an experience uh, that, that is true of all of us in some ways is that when something happens in our lives, something is a takeover or something is a gain, we can experience something in life that for one person can be experienced as a win or a victory or a gain in life, but that same experience can then also be experienced as a loss to someone else. Now, where this is most common, or one of the ways this is most common, is in the realm of mergers and acquisitions. When one group, as y'all didn't think I was going to go there, did you? Uh, with one group, uh, th- there could be a gain of sorts, right? When, they, uh, when companies merge or they acquire a new company, but then the same experience, someone else could experience a loss, a loss of control, a loss of power, a loss of influence as the company has been acquired. Let me give you some examples of how this may play out. One being Disney and Star Wars. <clears throat> In the fall of 2012, uh, Lucasfilms and Star Wars was acquired by Disney for some, I think it was like a little bit over $4 billion dollars. And some have said this has been a great gain for Star Wars. They have these new series, these mini-series that have come out on Disney+. Plus. Some of you probably love these series. But others have said that Disney's actually, it's been a loss for Star Wars. Uh, namely, the trilogy that came out, right? Um, and, and we'll leave the nerds to decide whether it's a loss or gain. But some have experienced as a loss and some have experienced as a gain. Here's another one. Twitter. And Elon Musk. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, $44 billion uh, to acquire Twitter. I, I guess it's got a new name right, right now, right? Isn't he like changing the name of it or something now? I, I just see all these like RIP Twitter on, uh, on Twitter right now in the Twitterverse. Uh, but obviously some people have experienced this new acquisition of Twitter as a gain and some have experienced it perhaps as a loss. Here's another one, politics in general. Every four to eight years, there is an inauguration. And typically, there is a change of power from one administration to the next. And in that day of inauguration, one group feels like it's a new beginning, like it's a new day. The other group feels like it's the end of the world. Um, Most notably, I remember a few years back, I'm not going to say exactly when, nor will I use the picture, but there was a meme that went uh, viral of someone screaming in the streets because of one particular president. So uh, obviously, people feel very strongly about the change in administrations. Uh, Here's another one, marriage, right? I could be somewhat of a merger, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, (laughs) There you go. Uh, I use this photo because it shows more of her and less of me. So that is the gain right there, guys. That's the gain. Um, But, you know, we we actually have uh, our premarital classes, which we call merge, right? There's this kind of merger that is is a gain in marriage for sure, but also can be experienced as a loss for others. One particular guy in particular. There was a guy who really wanted to date my wife. And... um, (laughs) Unfortunately, she chose to date me instead, and he, quote, said to her, you have now ruined my Christmas. Um, that, was a, that was a rough Christmas 2012 for that guy. Um, so it's a gain and a loss, right? 
here's another one. Dan Snyder and the Washington football team. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, right now, uh, there's an offer for $6 billion by Joshua Harris. No, that is not the kiss dating goodbye Joshua Harris either. Uh, that he did not sell that many books. Um, but $6 billion to acquire this team. I don't think anyone's going to see it as a loss uh, for Dan Snyder to be out of the organization. But, but some might see it as a gain and some might see it as a loss. The point is this, when any time there's a takeover of something, the perspective is that some might see it as a loss and some might see it as a gain. And even the, one of the famous songs by uh, the rock band Semisonic, it was their one hit wonder closing time, they said, every new beginning comes from some other's beginning's end. But what we find after the resurrection is that the kingdom of God is completely different than this. Because when Jesus comes after his resurrection and he comes to places and he comes into people's lives and he takes over, what happens is the tide rises for everyone. There is no loss in that scenario because the aim of resurrection is the flourishing of all. When Jesus moves into a space or a time and he takes over in the ultimate takeover, which is his uh, takeover of sin, death, and evil by the cross and resurrection, when he does that, it is a win-win. It's a win-win for everyone. And we see this actually happen in history. Right after he gives these final words, we're going to see the, the Great Commission. What we see is the church takes hold of these words, and they begin to live this out, to proclaim the good news of what Jesus has come to do for them, to live out the ethic of his love. And what happens is the church begins to move out into spaces and places, and it begins to change the very fabric of the cities that they occupy. It begins to change the lives of the people they come in contact with to the point where you get to the third century AD and Rome is literally flipped upside down because of the influence of the church. It is transformed not by a government takeover, not by a person in power. It is transformed by the church moving into communities and spaces with this mission of loving people and proclaiming the good news of what Jesus Christ has come to do. And when that happens, when that takeover happens, then we see what, what we celebrate even at Christmas time with the famous lines of a Christmas hymn, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. We begin to see that in real time, that when the church is sent out and moves out into the places that he calls us to, we begin to see this takeover take place. It's not something we just marvel at. It's something that sends us out into action. You see, Easter's a great time. And it's a wonderful time to celebrate. But it's, it's bound up with mission, because right after his resurrection, he calls his disciples to be sent out for the flourishing of all. It's like as if you discovered a cure to a disease that you and others had. And if you discover that cure to that disease, you don't simply rejoice over that and treat yourself. You take it to everyone around you, so they might be healed as well. That is the resurrection. The resurrection is a statement that says a cure has been discovered a cure has been discovered for the things that are most destructive in our world. Sin, death, and evil. And therefore, we have this great news to tell others and to help people live in this reality. And so today, that's what we're going to look at. Our main mission in life is to understand this commission, which is that Jesus sends us out on mission, all of us today. He sends us out on mission. If you call yourself a Christian today, if you believe to be a Christian today, your life is one of being sent. So the question then becomes, well, how can we participate? How can we participate in witnessing to the kingdom of God, to seeing the kingdom of God take over our city for the flourishing of all? 
How can we see that happen through King's Church? And today, as we look at this Great Commission in our outline, we're going to see three things about it. Number one, the Great Commission is an invitation to belong. Number two, it's a calling to go. And number three, it's a promise to remember. As we live out this mission, we're going to see that it's an invitation to belong, it's a calling to go, and it's a promise to remember this morning. So let's dive into the text together. And as we find ourselves here in verse 16, uh, just kind of the, the, the history here, the timeline in history, Jesus has resurrected. This is post-resurrection. His followers are overjoyed. They're filled with joy because they so, they've seen him alive, and he has appeared to them multiple times. And history records that during these days, approximately 40 days between uh, the, the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension, he is appearing, he is teaching, he is instructing his disciples. And he does this at several different locations but perhaps most notably is on this mountain in Galilee where he gives them what we call the Great Commission. And he says in verse 16, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Right in the middle of this commission, right in the middle of these instructions that Jesus is leaving with his disciples, is a profound truth of the Christian faith. A, a, a profound truth of the Christian faith that actually leads us, it gives us a glimpse into the very heart of God. And it's right in this subtle phrase that is so packed with so much theological significance is that as they go, and as they teach, and as they proclaim, he says that we should baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In essence, what Jesus is giving us here is a look and appear into the Trinity, this historical document that says that there's one God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are eternally equal in power, and in glory, and might, and beauty. It's not as if we believe in one God and one person or we believe in multiple gods. The Trinity is one God, three persons, all equally and eternally God. And why is this important? Because as Jesus is moving out with his disciples and he's giving them this commission, he's telling them to go and to baptize, meaning, meaning as someone believes in faith to then participate in this act that, that unites us with Jesus and unites us with his people. He says, when we do that, you're going to baptize them in this one name. Because what is this one name communicating? It is communicating the very nature of God. It is communicating the very heart of God. That we serve a God who is united. A God who is a community. In other words, the Trinity lets us peer to the very heart and the inner workings of God himself. That in God, as we see this play into the New Testament and the Old Testament, when we see this play out, that God in his very nature and the inner workings of himself, there's this ongoing relationship in which we see each member of the Trinity committed to glorifying the other, to highlighting the beauty of the other, to loving and serving the other. And that's just they share this common life with one another. And the fact is, the, that's why the Bible says in 1 John that God is love. Why does he say that? Because of the very nature, the very heart of God in the Trinity is that we serve a God of unity, of community, of inexhaustible and irrepressible love. There's an amazing, beautiful truth here. 
But why is he signifying this? Because he doesn't just tell them, go baptize him with this name. He says, into the name. In essence, what he's calling disciples to do is not just receive a label that we can say at a baptism ceremony. He's not just telling us, here's a new title that I give to you. He's expressing a new way of life for the Christian. That when we come into the people of God through baptism, we have an invitation to belong, to be immersed into the deep and intimate community with God himself, with the relationship with God. That Jesus is inviting us actually in this great commission to experience the dynamic and thriving community in relation to God. To be baptized into his name has a very specific implication for us today. And then as, as we fulfill the Great Commission, as we go out, it means that we as King's Church are called to be this type of community. This type of community that celebrates a self-giving love. And look, we know that D.C. as a city is a very lonely place. If you haven't experienced that yet, then give it a few more weeks, right? You probably just got here. <laughs> People come here and they thrive, they want to succeed, and they put all their eggs in that basket of, of finding a, a achievement and ambition and their dreams. And what they typically do, and what we all fall short in doing, is we typically isolate the communities around us to, to find that. And in doing so, we find ourselves restless. We find ourselves lonely. We find ourselves feeling like something's off. And what is off in those moments is that we put distance between the very thing that is innate to our need, and that is community that has a sense of a belonging. And where do we get that type of belonging? Where do we get that type of, of community? It comes from the very nature of our God who created us. There was an article I read recently that talked about how we experience the richness in life. And the question was posed in the article, how do we feel like we're rich? And as they surveyed people's answers, there was a lot of people who answered things like home ownership, the ability to buy whatever we want, the ability to own your own car, the ability to eat out regularly. All these things were popular answers, but the thing that went to the top of the list was the ability to spend time with those you love. At the very top of the list was not material success or security or more wealth. It was relational richness, a life of rich community. Why was that? Because even those who may not know God, who may be distant from God, realized that we were made for that. That's what makes us feel whole. And that's why the, the reason here is that, is that we have a God who is himself a dynamic, life-giving community. And God invites us in to belong. He invites us in to, to be immersed in his presence. He invites us in to live this life together. And so as a community, the first thing as we walk into this, this commission, as Jesus is inviting us, he's, he's giving us this sweet invitation to belong, which is why we believe at King's Church that community is so vital to our mission that we as King's Church believe that we want to be a place, we want to be a physical presence in the city, a harbor, if you will, in the loneliness of the city that people can come and they can find what they were honestly created for in the first place. A community where they can feel a sense of belonging, to be known by their God and to know their God and to be a part of this community. Because the Christian life is hard and we were never meant to do it alone in the first place. And God has put forth here in his great commission, as he sends us out on mission, is to realize that we first have an invitation to belong to something. To not be sent by ourselves, but to receive this invitation to belong. But then with that invitation, he does give us a calling to go. As he invites us in to be a part of his people, as he invites us in to belong into this rich community with him, he also calls us to go. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So he gives them this calling. He gives them this famous commissioning to have this particular mission, to, to orient their lives around this goal, this purpose, this mission. And who is this for? Well, he invites all of us to participate in it in this room today. He invites all of us to move into this commission. Notice in verse 17 again. When they saw him, there were some that worshipped him, but there were also some that doubted him. And yet Jesus speaks to them all. You see, I think what Jesus is trying to communicate to us here is that he's not just come to send those who are filled with the most faith. He has come to send all of us. What he's saying is not, you who are, who are filled with the most faith, you go out and the rest of you sit on the bench. He's not looking at here and saying, uh, you who, uh, who, who believers here who, who have no doubt, you go out, but the doubters, you stay behind. No, he says, even to those who doubted him in this moment, he gives them the commission to go. Because it's a reminder that all of us, no matter how deep our faith we might possess, no matter to the degree of faith that we have in this moment, we're all built for this mission. We are all wired for mission, for some kind of movement in our lives, to be driven by a sense of something that brings meaning in our lives into this world. That's why one uh, philosopher and author wrote, he says, quote, the mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. As Leslie Newbegin, who was a British theologian in India in the 20th century, he describes mission in this way out of uh, Matthew 28. He says, mission begins with a kind of explosion of joy. The news that the rejected and crucified Jesus is alive is something that cannot be suppressed. It must be told who can be silent about such a fact? But not only does Jesus invite us to experience this profound life of God, this profound intimacy with God, but he invites us to invite people to experience that same intimacy and that same relationship and that same kind of dynamic connectedness, to go and make disciples, and he sends us out on mission to tell people about our experience with that intimacy and that connectedness with God and to invite people into an explosion of joy. According to Newbegin, we experience an explosion of joy when we know who Jesus is. It is something that we cannot hide within ourselves. And all Jesus wants to do here is to authorize us to go and tell people. That's what he says here. He says, I have all authority on heaven and earth. It has been given to me. It's Jesus' way of saying, I'm in charge. It's his way of saying, I have been coordinated as the king. That through my life and through my death and my resurrection, it's as if Jesus hung up a huge sign across the world that says under new management, right? Like you ever go to the, one of those establishments that change management, you frequent them, and then you have to stop going because it's just gotten so bad? But then you go back and you're like, wow, they, now they're under new management again. Someone's taken ownership. They spruce up the place. They begin to renovate it. They begin to bring back good employees, and so you can start frequenting that place again. In a very similar way, that's what Jesus is doing. He is saying, I have come and I have begun the process through my resurrection of renovating this world again. Nothing, not even death itself, can stop me from carrying out my purposes in this world because all authority is mine. And you know what he tells us here? That as he does this renovating work, he's going to do it through you. He wants to do it through you, his disciples, his church. Now, I think it's fair to say that when we use the word authority, as a culture, we have a pretty general aversion to that. 
Um, in fact, we have a disdain for authority. Uh, if you think about the spirit of this age, it's not to bow a knee to authority. It's actually to say, no, speak your own truth. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Um, the best person to, uh, to talk about your good and to believe uh, for your, your, th- your thrivingness and your, uh, your happiness is yourself. You're the purpose of primary authority in life. So the idea of having some other authority is, is, is something that is hard to comprehend because as a culture, we, we like to say, no, our authority rests in, in me. That's what makes me authentic, right? But we need to recognize that that is actually completely at odds with the Christian faith. Because the Christianity necessitates, necessitates that we are under some other authority, namely Jesus. It's not our feelings. Our feelings are great. They're great things, but they're terrible authorities to have. Because our feelings and the things that we bring in, those places, those things that come into us, they're often shaped by the culture around us. Which means that the authority that we actually live by, when we say we live by our authentic self, our feelings, is actually what's shaping us around us, that's the culture. In fact, we're not our own authority, the culture's our own authority. Why that is important here is because if we live out of that way, if we live out of a sense of we're our own authority, then we can't actually be the church. Because in that sense, we're not offering anything alternative to the world around us. If we allow a sense of identity and our authority to just come from the culture's pressures around us and the ideologies and what, whatever the culture is saying is true at that moment, and we allow that to shape who we are, then we have nothing distinct about us to offer the world. We have nothing to give the world. But to be a Christian is inherently to be under another's authority, and that shouldn't scare you because Jesus has your best interests at heart. He comes, and he exercises his authority for our good. He exercises his authority because it's bound up in the way the world is. It is aligned with reality. It is aligned with hope. He exercises his authority over us because he wants our flourishing. It is for our good. It may not always feel right because our feelings and our desires are fallen and broken, but Jesus, his authority will always lead us to flourishing. That's why he says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, and I want you to go share this news. I authorize you to go speak of it. I authorize you to tell people about it. It's like when you experience something really good in life. You experience a restaurant that just is the best restaurant you've ever had, or, or you go to a place that just is amazing sights, and what do you do when you come off of those experiences? You literally find someone to talk to, right? Even if they don't want to hear it. You're going to find someone to, to share that experience of joy. And it's back to what Leslie Newbigin said. When we experience the explosion of joy of knowing Jesus, we should want to find people. We should want to find people to share what he has done in our lives. But notice when Jesus sends, he doesn't just send us by ourselves. He uses the plural here, that we would all go and do this. And then we would go to all nations, he says. He doesn't just speak here of all nations, saying that we should go to the most remote places of the world. What he's getting at here is that we should speak about Jesus and invite people to Jesus in every single context we find ourselves wherever our feet are planted, in every single part of this world that we inhabit, to anyone who will hear, to go and to experience and to express this explosion of joy that we have in what Jesus has done in our lives. And let me just get practical for a moment here and how that plays out at King's Church. Because as a church, this calling still applies to us. We have not arrived. We are not beyond this calling to go. This calling is what motivated us at the very beginning of King's Church, when we were just a handful of people in a hotel room. It is this calling to go and to share what Jesus has done is what motivated and gave us courage 
in the midst of the uncertainty of a worldwide pandemic where we didn't know what the future was going to hold. It is his calling to go. It is his calling to share what Jesus has done and be his people on mission that is moving us forward in faith as we think about a capital campaign. As we think about what, what does this mean for us to move forward and to move out? This is the calling that, that gives us the, the, the strength and the faith to say, God, we want to have our feet firmly planted here in D.C. We want to live a gospel legacy for your name here in D.C. It is this calling to go that allows us to trust him in the astronomical, faith-filled endeavor of one day wanting to own our own space in D.C. We have not arrived. We're not beyond this calling as a church. This is just the beginning of what God is doing as he's moving through our church to the Lord willing, not only impact D.C. for the long haul, but to impact the world as we think about even a bigger vision for our church planning network that we've talked about. This idea of taking the gospel to the nations is something that is ingrained in the DNA of who we are as a church. So church, let's not just sit back and say we've arrived. Let's see that this sending, this calling, it is precisely what Jesus invites us to join in on in this moment in time. That we would move out in faith to experience life in Jesus and share that with others. And then finally, as we come to a close, he gives us a promise to remember. A promise to remember. He ends this commission to go with this promise. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, Matthew begins and ends his gospel in the same way. He begins his gospel by telling us in Matthew chapter 1 that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, had come, and Matthew gives him a name. He says he is Emmanuel, God with us. That in Jesus, the promise that God has come to be with us is being fulfilled. And he ends in chapter 28 with that same promise that he is going to be with his people to the very end of the age. This is not something casual he's just saying. It's not just like, well, don't worry, God is with you. No, he is definitively and intimately proclaiming that Jesus is personally committed to you, church. He is committed to you to the very end. He is committed to you to the, the history of the world. When the history of the world is over, he is going to be there. At the end of the age, when it comes, he is going to be there. When the story has its conclusion, he will be there because he is the one who writes the story. And I know as individuals, oftentimes, especially in an individualistic culture, it's easier for us to read this and simply to say, well, this just means that Jesus is my companion. I have companionship with Jesus, right? That when I pray, he's with me. When I walk, he's with me. And that is true. But it's like if we treat Jesus just kind of like a gas, right? Like he's just around us. He's just kind of orbiting around us. He's just kind of hovering there but it's so much more deeper than that. What he is proclaiming here is that he is the God who came into this world. It is a promise to remember that he is the God who came into this world. He came from heaven to earth. He was born into this world. He went from a throne to a manger. Why? So that he could be with us. So that not even heaven and earth could separate us. He died on a cross and he, he went from someone who was receiving the praise of the angels to someone who was mocked and killed by the crowds for the punishment of our sin. Why? So that he could be with us. So that not even sin itself could separate us. And he went to the grave. And three days later, he was resurrected. And he came back to life. Why? So that death itself could not separate us. And in fact, he transcends death for us 
so that he can be with us. In the coming days from this moment that he's speaking to his disciples, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father so that he can advocate for us. And then he will send his spirit into the world to empower us and to fill us with this life and mission. Why? So that again, he could be with us. You see, to live a life on mission is to believe in this promise that every step we take to the end of the ages, to the end of this world, Jesus is proclaiming, I am with you. I am with you. Nothing can separate us from that promise. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is with his people. So as we come to our time of conclusion and we begin to prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, perhaps you're in this room right now and you're wondering if the presence of God is really with you. Maybe you haven't felt his presence. Maybe you're wondering if this promise is true for you. Jesus assures us here in this text of his commitment to us. He goes to great lengths to show us just how committed he is to his church. That he will be with us to the very end of the age. And you know how we experience this promise? We primarily experience this promise most intensely in community and on mission. We don't primarily experience it just in community, but we experience it when we are a community on mission. We experience his presence when we come together and we live this life together on mission. And so let me just challenge you for, for a bit here. If you're sitting here today and you feel like, I, I just I don't feel God's presence right now, but you come and you leave and you don't invite any people into your life, you don't serve, you haven't found a way to connect, then perhaps the reason why you're missing out on this promise of God's presence with you is that you're not in community. Maybe the step towards feeling the presence of God and the, the trueness of this promise is to be in community and receive that invitation to belong. Or maybe you're saying, well, I have community. I have a great community. It's social, it's fun. We have a lot of affinity together, but I don't, I don't, I'm not really experiencing the presence of God. Well, perhaps your community is not moving out on mission together. Maybe it's just a community. And Jesus is challenging us to say, well, maybe, maybe we should, as a community, see what are the ways in which we can activate together on mission. Who can we invite? Who can we step out? Who can we go to the all, all the nations, as so to speak? Where is the next step towards getting involved and participating in mission together? To share the love of Christ that we know so true in our hearts. You say, well, we understand what Jesus has done for us and what he invites us to do, namely to have this kind of community with him. And we see that Jesus is continuing to do in the world through his spirit. Then we can be a community on Mission Kings Church. That we can move out and we can join him on that mission. And even when it seems hard, even when it seems as if we don't know the certainty of the future of this church, even when there's challenges ahead, and even when there's a faith-filled vision that we haven't seen the end result yet, we can move out because there's a promise that when we are a community on mission, behold, he is with you. He will never leave you. He is our king, and he is with and for his people, and he will be there to the very end of the age. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. 
For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.